Contained herein are the heresies of Radolf Burntwine, erstwhile monk-turned-traveling medical investigator. Join me as I uncover the blasphemous truth of a plague-ridden world, that ours is not a loving God, and we are not its favored children. The Heresies of Radolf Burntwine, coming January 2nd, wherever podcasts are available. Hey, everyone. Welcome to Let's Get Civical. This is the podcast that breaks down politics, government structure, and dives into the context of current events, but in a super fun way. I'm Lizzie Stewart, comedian, feminist, and political junkie. And I'm Arden Walentowski, former Senate intern, campaign staffer, and political strategist. In this episode, we're talking about Justice Sandra Day O'Connor. So grab your glass ceiling. And let's get civical. everybody uh hello every single one of you not not a person left behind in our hellos never a single one of you i want you all to feel like we hear you we see you we feel you check the closet we're in there we're in there hello <laughs> but welcome back to let's get civical i'm lizzie stewart and i'm arden wallentowski and what is there to say right now? Fall is, I feel like, about to fall. It's dropping That's tomorrow. That's crazy. Mm-hmm. Is it really? Is it drop? Is the temperature dropping tomorrow? Or is that, are you just... I was just, like, using just, that, like, in you the were metaphorical just being dropping. Oh, okay. I thought, I thought it was going to be, like, cold, and I need to know. <laughs> <'Cause>... <laughs> no, no, I think it's actually supposed to be, like, in the lower 80s, upper 70s for, like, quite a while. I love that. I love that yeah. fall is like, ugh, not yet. Ugh. Not yet. We Leave need me alone. to we need to ease into this. I know. I know. But what else is new? It's the time of the year to start watching Hocus Pocus. And Oh my gosh, sure. Sure. We're in that, Hocus Pocus season. It is Hocus Pocus season. It is. It's Gilmore Girls season for all who participate. Oh, sure, sure, sure. And yeah. then Basically, after Hocus Pocus season is when I start Christmas shopping. I mean, I've already done a little now, like just when I'm a place that I see something good. Yeah. But then after Hocus Pocus season is really like the start of the holidays, which then go for like two and a half months. I'm so very excited about it. I know you are. For those of you who don't know, Arden loves Christmas and has started listening to... The Christmas hits and the jingles and all the songs, which yep. I comment, I, I said to you, I was like, it's I a little know. late this year because normally I you know. do start in like August. It's true. You know, it's true. I, Once summer is over, you're like, it's <laughs> yes. Christmas. <laughs> it's Christmas. It's Christmas. Is it almost my birthday? That means it's almost Christmas time. Yeah. I. It was funny because I put that up and people who have known me for a long time who have been through this with me for and been in it with me for many years were like good for you like so great that you're like yay christmas and and you were like you're this is late for you this is late 
multiple people <laughs> like commented some way in that form and it was so good. And then yeah. like newer people in my life were like, what? Like, just prepare yourself. If you're going to have me in your life, you're going to have to accept the fact that it's just Christmas time yeah. starting September 7th. Like, right. that's it. Your brand is strong. It's strong. It, do- yeah. it does not waver in this regard. Yeah. It's like anytime something happens with JonBenet Ramsey, I get like 30 text messages. Oh, yeah. Being oh, like, yeah. Lizzie, did you see this about JonBenet Ramsey? And I'm like, of course I did, but keep it coming. <laughs> oh, keep it coming. <laughs> so similar brands, very strong. Both in like strength of integrity to mm-hmm. the brand and like no- recognizable notoriety right. of the brand. Exactly right. Right. Yeah. I have no idea how we're going to get from Christmas and JonBenet to our episode topic. I, I, I This is one that even I cannot fathom jumping So let's into. take a heart. <laughs> right. And let's talk about today's yeah. episode topic. So it's been a, quite a while since we've done a yeah. SCOTUS biopic biopic because... Well, because we've done them all that are current except for... Amy Comey Barrett. Oh, that's the yeah. one. Right. We haven't done. I forgot about her. Uh-huh. Yes, that's the one we haven't done because she was new. Yeah, we have not done Amy Comey Barrett because we are waiting for her to get a couple more decisions under her belt so we can actually look at her pattern of decisions like we do with the other justices that we've done. And since she doesn't have a judicial, like a traditional judicial career, even pre becoming a Supreme Court justice, it's not like we can look at her. Many past opinions pre-bench. You know what I mean? Right. Right. So we're just giving... It's not that we're not doing her. We are absolutely going to do her. We're just giving her more time. But... More time to grow. Exactly. To grow. But in the meantime, we thought we would start looking at, you know, key, famous, infamous justices of history's past. And mm-hmm. no better place to start than... Sandra Day O'Connor herself. Sandra Day O'Connor, the first woman elected to the Supreme Court. Yeah. Literally first woman to the Supreme Court. Really interesting life. Really interesting Mm. voting patterns. We're going to look at some of the cases that she wrote the opinion on. And yeah, I like, I think she was a different kind of conservative. Yeah. Yeah. Like this, that's the sense that I got. Yeah, Sandra, the Sandra conservative n- does not exist on our current bench. I think the closest mm. thing, maybe, and it's a big maybe, is John Roberts. But even he, oh. I don't think, is quite a Sandra Day O'Connor conservative. Got it. So interesting. Okay, cool. But yeah. So before we jump in, uh, the sources today are coming from. Obviously, heavily from our favorite place on earth. Oh, yay, oh, yay, oh, yays. Because oh, yay. one of the greatest websites ever to exist. I love oh, yays. It's we say this every time. The best. It's literally like coming home every time we get to talk about oh, yays. Yeah. Other sources coming from 13.org and CNN. So Ooh. a lot of good stuff. Yeah. So, Arden, do you want to kick us off? Yes. Oh, my gosh. Yes. I would love to. Okay. Let's dig into her early life. She was born. 
That's it. She was born in. <laughs> Imagine if I was that bad at doing notes. <laughs> she was born, as we all know, because she, she lives. Click, click, click. She was born. Yeah. So Sandra Day O'Connor was born in El Paso, Texas on March 26, 1930. Fellow Texan. Shout her out. Ooh, ooh, Texan, Woot. Texan. She spent her early childhood on her family's large Lazy Bee cattle ranch in southeastern Arizona. What? Lazy, Lazy Bee being bee the, uh, the name of the, of the ranch. Of the ranch, Lazy yeah. Bee cattle. Oh, my yeah. God. That's hysterical. Ultimately, her parents sent her to live with her grandmother in El Paso to give her the best chance at a quality education. She thrived at the Radford School for Girls and graduated high school two years early. Go off. Go off. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So here's I'm going to pause right here. And then obviously yeah. there, there's going to be more. Sandra. I mean, they're all smart, obviously. Sandra's wicked smart. Like she's clearly like genius level. She's very, very smart. Yeah. Like I tried to. I went to my high school guidance counselor to be like, how can I graduate early? And she was like, you can't. Yeah. And I was so like when I hear that other people did that, I get really jealous because I wasn't allowed to. Yeah. And also it's like I don't think any of the other justices that we've covered have graduated early. You know. Yeah. Not that they probably couldn't if they had wanted to, but it's just it's interesting. I think it's interesting. Yeah. So continuing on with her education, this fact is insane. At age 16 – she was admitted to Stanford University, where she earned a bachelor's degree in economics. Oh, my God. What? What? At 16? I don't even know what I was doing. Ugh. I was playing like a PS2. I was getting my driver's license, but also I took like intro to economics at the ripe young age of like 28 yeah. and got a C. Yeah. And this, <laughs> this woman is like, I, Let I got me actually it. make this my whole life? To, like demand curve absolutely she understood it all i took economics my senior year of high school and couldn't grasp it couldn't grasp it sorry i could i could like when they explained it i was like all right i get that but then like no the test results proved differently right right in 1950 so after she graduated with her degree in economics she was admitted to stanford law so she's what like 20. 20, like at max. She's in Stanford Law now. Okay. During her time at Stanford Law, she worked on the board of editors for the Stanford Law Review. So this is something we see with the other justices. They are part of their law review club team, which I still don't fully grasp what a law review is, but it seems to be the trend. Yeah, I don't get it. Okay. And then... She completed law school in just two years as opposed to the usual three years. Oh, my gosh. She graduated somehow third in her class, which is crazy that she wasn't first. That's but third in her insane. class. I, I know. mean, come on. Yeah, considering she's early. Right. So she graduated third in her class with one of the students ahead of her being fellow future justice William H. Reinquist. What? Crazy. That's nuts. Future chief justice, right? Yeah. Wasn't he a chief justice? We're, yeah. I mean, it, it it like it feels like such a small world, but then also there's like four major colleges that these people all right. go to. 
Correct. Correct. There are only it's four not- colleges that they go to. It's like this. It's like Stanford, Princeton, uh, Harvard, and Columbia. Yale. And Yale. Five. Yale. Yeah. Even Stanford. I feel like we don't see a ton of no. justices from Stanford. So this is kind of a curveball. Yeah. But, but yeah. So Hilarious. Fun, Hilarious. fun fact. So then uh, after she graduated from law school in two years at the ripe old age of 22, basically. Mm-hmm. But despite her impeccable qualifications, Sandra struggled to find employment in the legal field due to a heavy bias against women as attorneys. Same thing kind of like RBG encountered as well. I hate humans. I know, right? <laughs> They're such dicks. Third in her classroom, Stanford University can't get a job because she's a woman. Because she's a woman. Mm-hmm. Jesus. She began her legal career working for the county attorney of San Mateo for free. Jesus. Mm-hmm. After turning down a paid position as a legal secretary. Go off. She's mm-hmm. like, I am. I mean, she knew what the right move was. It sucks that she had to do it for free. That is like such yeah. a slap in the face. Yep. Once she proved herself as an asset, she got a job as the deputy county attorney. Great. Yeah, once she proved herself, which is like she apparently couldn't prove herself. The with. boobs are very, they're in the way. They're in the way. They're in the way. You simply can't work if you have boobs. So Correct. you have to prove that you can do it yep. before you can get paid. We don't make the rules. We don't make no. the rules. So that leads us to, I do this every time, which is just like a timeline of career pre-SCOTUS and leading just after becoming a justice of the Supreme Court of the United States. So we're going to go through just some major milestones of her career. So as Arden said, from 1952 to 1953, she was the county deputy attorney in San Mateo, California. Then from 1955 to 1957, she worked as a civilian lawyer for the quartermaster corps in Germany while her husband served with the Army's Judge Advocate General Corps. So her husband had to be relocated to Germany. She went to Germany and worked in Germany. Wow. That's nuts. So cool. So then they finish with Germany. She comes back. In 1959, she opens her own law firm in Maryville, Arizona. So she's back in Arizona doing her own thing. Then... In 1965, so about six years after that, to 1969, mm-hmm. she was made the Assistant Attorney General of Arizona. Okay. Right. Okay. In 1969, she was appointed to fill a vacant seat in the Arizona Senate. So what? this is also, like, I don't think we've seen any justice yet where they no. served in public office in this way. Wow. Yeah. After she was appointed, she was then, like, properly elected. So, you know, the appointment seat obviously, like, ran out. And there, then she was actually elected into the Senate, the Arizona Senate. Then in 1972, she was reelected to the Arizona Senate and elected majority leader. And she was the first woman to hold this office in any state. So first woman to be in a majority leader in a state Senate ever. Go off, Sandra. Mm -hmm. Yes, Sandy. Mm Mm-hmm. 
And then this I found interesting because we've talked about this county so much, but from 1975 to 1979, she then switches gears and she becomes the Superior Court Judge of Maricopa County. So Maricopa County is famously the one where, oh, what's his face? That horrible racial profiling cop who like... Oh, 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 oh. You know what I mean? The one we did... We talked about him when we did, like, pardons. Pardons, yeah. His name what? will come to You me. know what? It's great. We don't have to say his name. He we doesn't don't have deserve to, it. We don't have to say his name, but yes. So he's from there, and also Maricopa County was a huge district during the, the most recent election because this was one of the counties where that caused Arizona to turn blue, if I recall. Yeah. Or it was one of those ones where we were waiting for <laughs> results to come in from Maricopa County. Oh, God. It's a big county. It's a big county in Arizona. Then after that, from 1979 to 1981, she was made judge of the Arizona Court of Appeals. So I feel like she had this like, cra- not crazy, but this really unique experience. And then she suddenly like shifted gears and got on what we have seen to be like the traditional track to becoming a Supreme Court justice. You know, like now I feel like, okay, now she's in like the judicial system and she's being a judge and she's becoming this judge and then an appeals judge and then like all the normal steps. But Mm -hmm. a wild card beginning, I would say. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Definitely not one that we're used to. Yeah. So while she's on the Arizona Court of Appeals, on August 19th, 1981, she was formally nominated to the Supreme Court by President Ronald Reagan to fill the seat of retiring Justice Potter Stewart. I love Potter as a first name. Really? I think it's so silly. It's so silly, but that's kind of why I love it. Sure. It's cute. It's cute. I I feel like if if I met a baby that was named Potter... I would fall madly in love. and But then mm-hmm. once he turned, like, 12, I'd be like, yeah. this is sad. <laughs> you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, that's, like, that feels like a, like a cute name, except that when you, when that kid, yeah, turns, like, an age where they're supposed to be, like, responsible for themselves, then it's like, oh, okay, Bryce. Like. Yeah. No. <laughs> it's not yeah. cute anymore. It's not now cute anymore. it just makes you sound like an asshole. Sure. So Potter Stewart retired. Sandra took his spot. On September 21st, 1981, she was confirmed by the U.S. Senate. And then four days later, on September 25th, 1981, she was sworn in as the first female Supreme Court Justice of the United States. So that's why we're doing this biopic now is because we're about to encroach upon the anniversary of her being sworn in. That's the first time. Go off, Sandy. Go off. Yeah. Good job, girl. And then this is just some stuff post-Supreme Court. So a couple of health battles in October of 1988. She had surgery for breast cancer after being diagnosed earlier in the year. Then... Mm. She ended up retiring from the Supreme Court on January 31st, 2006. So she was on there for a good 25 years. Math. Mm. Dang, yeah, that's good. Then in 2008, so two years after retiring, she developed a website called Our Courts, which later became iCivics. 
and it was a free <laughs> program for students to learn about the U.S. court system. Oh my God, she would have loved us. I know. Then on July 30th, 2009, she was awarded the Presidential Medal of Freedom by President Barack Obama. Obviously. Obviously. I remember that. Yeah. Big, big things. Yep. On February 25th, 2014, she released her book, Out of Order, which is based on the Supreme Court and its history. So we literally have to get our hands on that. Oh, yep. Put it next to my Sonia Sotomayor book that I have that is signed by Sonia. (laughs) And then on October 23rd, 2018, she released a letter revealing that she had been diagnosed with the beginning stages of dementia, most likely Alzheimer's disease. Wow. I did not know that. Yep. So Sandra is still living. She's she's still alive. She is 91. Yeah. Holy guacamole. I know. I know. Oh my god. Sandra, come on our show. I know. I would I mean, I would literally I think just cry. <laughs> I yeah. Oh. Yeah. Oh, okay. Then this is just like a little fun thing. In July of 2019, O'Connor's former home is listed by the National Park Service and the National Register of Historic Places. What? The Adobe House built by O'Connor and her late husband in 1958 in Paradise Valley, Arizona, was relocated to Temp, Arizona in 2009. I think it's Tempe. Tempe, sorry, Tempe, Tempe. Arizona in 2009. And it is the home of the Sandra Day O'Connor Institute, which is a very helpful website. Yeah, it's a whole thing, all things about Sandra Day O'Connor. And yeah, you can visit it. So when we're in Arizona, which I'm sure we'll be at some point... It's going on the list of places to go. Love. Pay homage to Sandra. I love. I know. Aww. I know. She had like a good... What makes me so sad because she wrote that letter in 2018. Yeah. That she has been diagnosed at the beginning of state stages of dementia, which means it's probably already like... like it's not like, oh, I forgot that phone number. Like to get to that point, like there's a... Yeah. Like a whole thing to get there. And that was like three years ago. Like, I wonder how she's doing. I know. Yeah. So she's like fully not in public life at all. Um, No. Understandable. I don't blame her. Oh, yeah. She's also 91. Right. Leave her alone. (laughs) Leave her alone. Leave her alone. Leave the woman alone. We're going to take a quick break for a little word from our sponsors. As a podcast network, our first priority has always been audio and the stories we're able to share with you. But we also sell merch, and organizing that was made both possible and easy with Shopify. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell and grow at every stage of your business, from the launch your online shop stage all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell everywhere. They have an all-in-one e-commerce platform and in-person POS system, so wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. With the internet's best converting checkout, 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms, Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers. 
Shopify has allowed us to share something tangible with the podcast community we've built here, selling our beanies, sweatshirts, and mugs to fans of our shows without taking up too much time from all the other work we do to bring you even more great content. And it's not just us. Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S. Shopify is also the global force behind Allbirds, Rothy's, and Brooklinen, and millions of other entrepreneurs of every size across 175 countries. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash realm, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash R-E-A-L-M now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash realm. Hey there, this is Justin Bartha. I made a funny new podcast, King of the Egg Cream. It has the greatest cast in the history of podcasts with actors like Louis Black. I'm torn by my feelings for two women. Bobby Cannavale. You can eat it. Or if someone hits you, you can put it on your cut. Melanie Linsky. I wonder what these marvelous things are that look just like boiled chicken feet. Jason Ritter. I can break things and pick locks and kill people. Michael Stuhlbarg. The whole point is to inspire people that they should make themselves better. Ari Grainer. No, don't whet its appetite. What are you, an idiot? Me, Justin Bartha. That's not just any egg cream, that's a Lemke's special. And all narrated by the hilarious Richard Kind. This is the story of Harry Dalowitz and how he rose from nothing to become New York's King of the Egg Cream. So if you like funny true stories, come listen to King of the Egg Cream, available wherever you get your podcasts. So that's like her timeline. And now we're right. going to do notable cases. So these are Yay. all for when she was a justice on the bench of the Supreme Court of the United States. And just really interesting. Like this is to me when I was reading these, I was like, there are certainly cases where she's clearly I'm like, gosh, conservative ruling. Gotcha. Yeah. But yeah. some of these I was like, huh, that's interesting. That she's right. not in the conservative majority. <laughs> right, right, right. Yeah. I, that's what I remember about her. Like, obviously, first female justice of the Supreme Court. But then not like a flip-flopper. No. Like, fairly, con- like, definitely in the conservative bent. But sometimes you're like, this is one of those moments where, like, a conservative argument kind of helps support the, the like, more progressive action. Yeah. You know what yeah. I mean? Like... Yeah. It's that's why I equate her to how I feel about John Roberts sometimes because sometimes rulings have come out and I've been obviously very excited about it and I see John Roberts in the majority for it and I'm like, what are you doing here? Right. <laughs> yeah, it's supposed <laughs> to be here. And I think that's just because we've become so conditioned to expect what each justice is going to rule on. Like if it's a if like ba- based on political ideology. Um, right. Like the support, the Supreme Court has gotten extremist on both ends. And so mm-hmm. anytime there is like a relatively moderate or a swing person, it, it, you just I think it's just hard to under it's like, what is going on? I feel like my brain is right, a short right, right. circuit. <laughs> yeah. You're like, how can that even be possible? Right. So we're going to talk about some of her notable cases. Like Lizzie said, the first one is Mississippi University for Women at all versus Hogan. So here are the facts of the case. 
Joe Hogan, a registered nurse and qualified applicant, was denied admission to the Mississippi University for Women School of Nursing's bachelorette program on the basis of sex. Created by a state statute in 1884, the college was the oldest state-supported all-female college in the United States. Ah! So you see what's happening? It's kind of like an RBG case where it's like sexism, but the opposite way. Right. You know? And I should have said at the top, all of everything for these court cases, everything that we're going to go over is all OAs. So enjoy. Oh, yeah. So the question before the court was, did the state statute which prevented men from enrolling in Mississippi University for Women's School of Nursing, the nursing program, violate the Equal Protection Clause of the 14th Amendment? And the verdict was, yes, the Mm -hmm. court held that the state did not provide an exceedingly persuasive justification for the gender-based distinction. Um, How about the fact that, like, literally most other colleges in this country were, like, for men? Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. It's not sexism if it's against women, Arden. (laughs) Oh, I forgot. I forgot. It's natural. It's nature at work. Right, 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 right. When it goes the other way... Big problem. Mm-hmm. The state's primary argument that the policy constituted educational affirmative action for women was unpersuasive mm-hmm. <laughs> to the court since women traditionally have not lacked opportunities to enter nursing. Wait, so they're like, if this was like a law program, like maybe you'd have a point, but because it's nursing, like they don't need a special track. Like that's one of the five things. That we're allowed, we're allowing them to do. Yeah. That, that's I, bullshit. I mean, look, it's, I'm not saying it's a total W. <laughs> <laughs> oh but my God. it was, you know, it was the 19, what, 50s, 80s? I don't know when this yeah. was. It was, yeah. it was a weird time. It was a weird time. If anything, argued Justice O'Connor, the statute, quote, tends to perpetuate the stereotyped view of nursing as an exclusively women's job, close quote. Which, like, I see that. Yeah. I totally see that. I mean, that's exactly what it's doing. Yeah. (laughs) It's like, this is women's work, you know? Right. Right. And you're a man. So, no, you can't come here because this is women's Yeah, go get a man's job. Like go a, be a lawyer. Doctor. Go be a doctor. That's a thing. Yeah. Go be Women literally can't anything be doctors. Else. They're not smart enough. They're That's not smart why enough. we stick them in the nursing program. What about the yeah. children? Yeah. They can't handle it. Can't handle it. So yeah, yeah. Uh, Sandra wrote the majority for opinion for that one. Then the next one is the case Shaw v. Reno. So the facts of this case were... The U.S. Attorney General rejected a North Carolina congressional reapportionment plan because the plan created only one black majority district. North Carolina submitted a second plan creating two black majority districts. One of these districts was in part no wider than the interstate road along which it stretched. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Five North Carolina residents challenged the constitutionality of this unusually shaped district alleging yes, that its off. only purpose was to secure the election of additional black representatives. Wow. So the, the question before the court became, did the North Carolina's residents claim that the state created a racially gerrymandered district raise a valid constitutional issue under the 14th Amendment Equal Protection Clause? And the verdict was, yes. 
The court <laughs> held that although North Carolina's reapportionment plan was racially neutral on its face, the resulting district shape was bizarre enough to suggest that it constituted an effort to separate voters into different districts based on race. Wow. Yeah. The unusual district, while perhaps created by noble intentions, seemed to exceed what was reasonably necessary to avoid racial imbalances. After concluding that the resident's claim did give rise to an equal protection challenge, the court remanded adding that in the absence of contradictory evidence, the district court would have to decide on whether or not some compelling government interest justified North Carolina's plan. And this majority opinion was written by Sandra Day O'Connor. So this was a case of obviously gerrymandering, gerrymandering for what you could argue being a good cause, but at the end of the day, gerrymandering all the same in a To an extent, I mean, you know, we can look at districts that are, you know, drawn right now and be like, this is, this is crazy. Right. Gerrymandering has gotten so out of hand. But in this case, they said you have to redraw. Wow. It's so funny that now, like this, that's such like a bold statement. And now Mm -hmm. the court's like, we can't do gerrymandering. We don't see gerrymandering <laughs> as existing. It's not real. Oh, I forget yeah. how angry that Robert's ruling makes me. Yes. We can't, we we actually as the court can't handle gerrymandering. It has to be the legislature that deals with gerrymandering. And I'm like, my dude, the legislature is what is causing the gerrymandering. Right, right. Does nobody also, read the paper? It's like, what's going on? <laughs> Maybe pick up Sandra's book because, like, the court has a history. Has a history. Of looking at gerrymandering cases. I know. Uh, And he probably, he did not do his homework that day. Mm -mm. Oh, man. I got to keep my, I've got to keep my. Mm -mm. We're good. Keep it cool. Keep it cool. Keep it cool. Yeah. The next case we're going to talk about is uh, Planned Parenthood versus Casey. So here are the facts of the case. The Pennsylvania legislature amended its abortion control law in 1988 and 1989. Among the new provisions, the law required informed consent and a 24-hour waiting period prior to the procedure. A minor seeking an abortion required the consent of one parent. The law allows for a judicial bypass procedure, so if you can't do that, there is a way to kind of get around that. A married woman seeking an abortion had to indicate that she had notified her husband of her intention to abort the fetus. Mm-hmm. These provisions were challenged by several abortion clinics and physicians. A federal appeals court upheld all the provisions except for the husband notification requirement. Interesting. Yeah. We've talked about this case before. Yeah. We've like danced around it in the past. Yeah. So it's it's a complicated one. But right. What's Carry interesting on. to me is that the court was like, yeah, 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 sure. Except the husband thing. Like, that I would have thought they would have held up, like, first. I mean, who's to say? There yeah. have been, there's so many. I'm always confused by the courts, I have to yeah. say. They're not what you might say consistent. No. So the question before the court is, can a state require women who want an abortion to obtain informed consent wait 24 hours, and then if married, notify their husbands, and if they're minors, obtain parental consent 
without violating their right to abortion is guaranteed by Roe v. Wade? Great question. Yeah. So this was a huge case. It's a great question. This was a huge case because if the Supreme Court voted, like, in favor of all of these provisions, it would have been a very easy overturn of Roe v. Wade. Like, that would have been the next step. So it was very much about, like, are we going to keep going with Roe v. Wade or not? Right. Because if you say, yes, this is all fine, then Roe v. Wade, yeah, there's no... Right to privacy. Wow. The court is endlessly fascinating to me. So the verdict in a bitter five to four decision, the court again reaffirmed Roe, but it upheld most of the Pennsylvania provisions. For the first time, the justices imposed a new standard to determine the validity of laws restricting abortions. The new standard asks whether a state abortion regulation has the purpose or effect of imposing an undue burden. Oh, that's where that phrase came Mm -hmm. from which is defined as a, quote, substantial obstacle in the path of a woman seeking an abortion before the fetus attains viability, close quote. Under the standard, the only provision to fail the undue burden test was the husband notification requirement. In a rare step, the opinion for the court was crafted and authored by three justices, O'Connor, Kennedy, and Souter. Yeah. So undue burden. Undue burden. We hear it all the time now. Oh, yeah. I mean, almost... All challenges to restrictive abortion laws have to do with undue burden. Burden, right. Right. Crazy. And yeah, this is another one where it's like O'Connor is in the majority and it's like, what? Oh. All right, now we're going to close out because we cannot do a SCOTUS biopic biopic without talking about Bush v. Gore. Oh my god. Oh my god. I was wait, Art, and the funniest thing just happened. So I was doing my little song song and yeah, yeah. in Zoom, a little notification just popped up and said, playing music question mark. Ah yes, <laughs> like, you are. yes I am. <laughs> and it's now trying to get me to set up professional audio in audio settings ah! for my music that I'm playing. That's how good you are. <laughs> That is how good you are. Y'all, I'm a singer. I'm a musician. You Come are a on. singer. Get you a manager. I know. So we have to talk about Bush v. Gore because she was on the bench when Bush v. Gore happened. And it's just one of those, like, Citizens United that I feel like we have to talk about if you were on the bench when yeah. it happened. Yep. So the, she's very interesting in this. So we all know what Bush v. Gore is. They, you know... Yeah, I'm not going to go through all the things, but yeah, what Sandra Day O'Connor did is she ended up voting in the majority to end the recount in Florida, which ended up, as we all know, leading to mm-hmm. George W. Bush becoming president of the United States. Here's what's wow. interesting. And here's where I'm like, mm, Sandy, come on. Come on. Sandra Day O'Connor and Anthony Kennedy are the only justices who did not attach their names to either a concurring or dissenting opinion in the case. So they voted to stop the recount, which, like, let George Bush become president, and then didn't say, like, yes, I am concurring with this opinion or this dissent. And I'm like, um... I'm sorry, you do have Mm. to kind of justify your actions here. You do have to, like, like, 
step up to the plate to the yeah. job that you were assigned to that you took on and like justify exactly. why you think we shouldn't keep counting people's votes. Exactly. Even if like, I mean, we've seen it before where somebody will vote, let's say in the majority and they don't attach their name to the general opinion and they submit right. their own opinion their for own. their own right. reasons. Yeah. That was an option. And those two were like, wow. I'm just going to put my name to anything. It's like, no, of a presidential election? That's crazy. That's crazy that they didn't put their name to an opinion or a dissent or put their own. That's so wild. I know. Mm -mm -mm, That's so wild. Mm Mm-hmm. So... Notable cases, y'all. She's had a she's had a wild career, that's for sure. She had a lot of them. Mm Mm-hmm. Wow. Wow, wow, wow. We've come to the point of the episode where we talk about fun facts, fun facts, fun facts, fun facts, fun facts. You did did great. You're doing so good. Yeah, Yeah, they're all yours today. My Zoom did not ask me if I was (laughs) if I was playing music. So we can't all be musicians, okay? We can't all be singers. (laughs) I know. So Sandra Day O'Connor was confirmed by the Senate 99 to 0. I know. Isn't that crazy? Who was out that day? That is crazy. But also, who was out? There was one percent. Oh, there was one percent. Okay, great. Can you imagine a Supreme Court justice being confirmed 99 to 0 now? No. On either side. On either side. No. It is impossible. Mm Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Sandra Day O'Connor votes most often with Chief Justice William Rehnquist, 80% of the time during the last four years of her tenure as um, a justice, and least often with senior liberal justice John Paul Stevens. They voted together 58% of the time during the same period. Although, like, that's still better than we would get now. Oh, for sure. For sure. That's more than half. Yeah. I know. <gasps> oh, my God. I know. Ew. Ew, her I know. seat was filled by Samuel Alito. Ugh. I know. I'm like, we couldn't have filled her with another woman. We had to fill her with Samuel Alito. No. At least Trump nominated a woman to fill RBG's seat. Oh, seriously. I mean, could there be two people more different? But yes, yeah, at least they were both for sure. Yeah. Crazy. She was a proponent of judicial restraint. At her confirmation hearings, she said, quote, judges are not only not authorized to engage in executive or legislative functions, they're also ill-equipped to do so, close quote. I think John Roberts, like, needs to just, like, read that statement. Well, John Roberts is in denial about, so, because he's he he says the same thing. Where it's like the this is true. The Supreme Court should not legislate, but what John Roberts does is legislate. Mm -hmm. Like the decisions that have come in, where he's like, "We can't legislate," blah 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 blah, is still legislating. Right. And I'm just that's my thing. I'm like, I understand, but your your opinions have an impact on the laws. Right. Right. I also think that like he's not he's not like. He's very hands off, like during the Trump, you know, impeachment hearing, he basically like just read names. And I was like, that doesn't mean that you like don't have a part to play here just because you think like you want to be hands off. Like you're not actually writing the bill, but you can like steer a direction. You can take responsibility. Like, yeah, if the if the justices of the Supreme Court were just supposed to be like warm bodies, like we would hire extras like this is no (laughs) 
there's like there's yeah. a middle ground here. There's a middle ground yeah. here. Yeah. Ugh. Yeah, I agree. But that is Sandra Day O'Connor in what you could call a nutshell. So good. I yeah. like her. I mean, I, do I agree with her politically? Probably not. Maybe she's more progressive now. Who knows? Who knows? That's always my hope. But like, yeah, she seems like good people. She's yeah. super smart. Yeah. What I like about her is that I feel like, and, and we were talking about this earlier, I was like, I feel like she allowed herself, she didn't allow herself to be put into the box of liberal or conservative. I mean, yeah. I think the her pattern was she leaned more conservative, but if she agreed with the liberal justice, like, no, no problem being like, yeah, over here. I'm over yeah. here. That's the, it's the here. argument. It's the best legal argument. It's a, yeah. we're upholding the Constitution. It doesn't matter, you know. I feel like a lot of justices say that, you know, political ideology doesn't matter. And I'm like, then prove it. Yeah. And that's both. That's on both sides. It's, you know? It is. Yep. It truly I is on both agree. sides. But yep. I think Sandra Day O'Connor certainly proved that it wasn't always about partisan. It wasn't always about ideology. It was about the law and constitutionality. Now, I'm sure right. I have dif- disagreements about what she thinks constitutionality is and what I think constitutionality is. But I look at her career and I'm like, all right, I see it. Yeah. See yeah. what you were doing? Yeah. So that's our episode on Sandra Day O'Connor and the end of this SCOTUS biopic biopic. Who are we going to do next? I don't know. I don't know. I, I don't know. know. If you, if you listeners have an idea of what Supreme Court justice you want us to cover next, you know where to find us, okay? Yeah. And I want to hear who you want us to cover because, I mean, it could be Potter Stewart. I don't know. We'll see. We'll see how it goes. Potter Stewart. Oh, my God. <laughs> oh, my God. I want to see if he lives up to his name. I know, right? But in the meantime, we love you so, so much. And if you like what you heard, you can find us on Twitter and Instagram at Let's Get Civical. As always, you can rate us. You can review us. You can subscribe to us. We love you so, so much. And we will see you next Wednesday. Goodbye. Goodbye.